0: We hope you brought your Bible today. If you don't, there's one in the pew. You're more than welcome to take that as our gift. But we'd ask you this morning to find your way as part two of this message on the, from bondage to blessing. What was going on in the history of the book of Acts that records the earliest history of what the first century church was all about? What were they doing? And what we have in the book of Acts are some select texts inspired by the Holy Spirit that we have the word of God to let us know some details about certain things. Now last week we talked about part one of this where we saw the demon-possessed girl delivered by the hands of Paul and he removed the demonic spirit from her as he was witnessing for Christ all throughout this place called Philippi where him and three of his other companions were at. Well, part two of the blessings to bondage message today, I want to share with you what is going on in the life of Paul and what took place right after that great event where they cast out the demon that was in this this girl that was being used by her, her slave masters, if you will, for the fortune that she was providing for them. And now let's see where doing good landed Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke in the following chapter. So if you'll find your place there, Acts chapter 16. I want to share with you, last week I talked about four divine perspectives that we had. This week, however, I want to share with you four divine challenges of how do we apply what we are seeing in this text to our daily life. What is the takeaways that I can leave out of here knowing God has spoken to my life and he's calling me to do something with what he has given to us. With that said, I want to share with you briefly, we're going to look in verses 30 through 33 for a moment, and then we're going to go back and pick back up in in verse 25 and begin examining this entire story of what is taking place as Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke find themselves in a perplexed situation. So if you've got your Bible, in verse 30, follow along as I read. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. It's a good word, isn't it? Well, let's pray together today over the scripture. So, Father, we thank you for your blessed word. We thank you that you speak to us through your scripture Father, we thank you for the inspiration of Scripture, that it is God-breathed, infallible, without error. And on this rock, you remind us you will build your church, the cornerstone, Jesus, and the Word that became flesh. So, Father, we pray that you open our minds and our hearts to receive all that you'd have us to learn, understand, and apply in our daily life. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to share with you an illustration. I figured it was kind of fitting for a rainy day. You see, when I went fishing one time, I was out thinking I was going to do some wonderful things and the storms of life began to brew. And next thing you know, during that storm, I find myself what I felt like was in this situation here. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I would want my money back. Amen? That's not a trip I want to take. Sometimes the storms are greater than what they think they are. And in reality, I wasn't on that boat. I was on this boat. It looked a little bit different. But to me, it was the same thing. It was a storm brewing in life and I was bitten rocked even by the little waves. Sometimes the storms of life, depending on our perspective, we can think we're either out there in the middle of the ocean on a big sea that's fixing to sink the ship, or even the smaller storms of life can rock our boat enough to where we're concerned and we're fearful about what is going on. And I want to share with you, if we look at verse 25 of the text, at the beginning of this passage, we see Paul, Silas, Luke, and the other guy that's with him, Timothy, All of them are in this issue now where they've been beaten, they've been been whipped with rods, and now they find themselves, Paul and Silas, specifically in prison here. So if you have your text, go back to verse 25 for a minute, and let's take a look at what was happening at the very beginning of this doing good as we, number one, recognize the miracle amidst of the misery. You notice that guy in that picture right there? He's got an umbrella. Notice he's still fishing. He's got his rod out. Isn't it wonderful sometimes that even amidst the storm, God gives us a way to overcome the challenges? Well, let's look at what he does through the life of Paul. Pick up in verse 25 and follow along. We'll read to verse 26, the end of it. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, keep in mind where they're at. They're in a prison. They're in the inner prison. They're in the dungeon. It's midnight. It's wet. There's no AC there's no meals three times a day. There's no chance to get a college education in prison. There's no CNN, Fox News, or TV being broadcast. They're in a wet, dark, deep dungeon area of the prison where they're at, shackled together. And what are they doing? They're singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were fastened. Now there's some amazing things that are taking place in here. We see two times previously, in chapters 2 and around chapters 9, we see God miraculously frees a couple of his people from prison and lets them go. And here we see Paul and Silas bound in chains, locked away for doing what? They were doing good. They cast out the demon in that girl that was fortune-telling. And it caused an uproar. Now here they are, uncondemned men in prison. So let me give you some reflections real quick as we go to point number one, which is recognizing the miracle amidst the misery. We know this wasn't a comfortable place for Paul and Silas to be in. We don't know exactly how old Paul was at, at this point in his life, but we know he wasn't a spring chicken, right? That's the Southern way of saying he weren't young. He was not a young man. So the depth cold, dark areas, but yet what were they doing? They were singing praises to God. So let me give you some reflections of what I've intimately called the jailbird chronicles. Paul will find himself in prison several times, which many of the letters that we have of the Pauline epistles were written from the jailbird chronicles, if you will. We have an understanding of what is taking place. Number one, I want to share with you the reflections that Paul and Silas leave us here with. Number one, times of conflict, not comfort, reveal our faith. Did y'all catch that? Times of conflict, not comfort, reveal one's faith. You see, where is Paul at here? This Damascus Road experience that he had in Acts chapter 9, when he was persecuting the church, he had a radical transformation. And I would argue, just like we saw this morning in the waters of baptism, friends, anyone who comes to Jesus Christ has had a radical transformation. That is you and I included with this. You may not have a radical Damascus road, something like scales fall from your eyes experience. But if you were saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, something radical has happened in your life. But it's the times of conflict, not comfort, that often reveal how deep our faith is grounded. And here, Paul and Silas are in prison, in conflict, having been beaten with rods. Forget the fact that we're going to see in a moment that they were Roman citizens. And that what was going on in this Roman colony of Philippi was absolutely illegal. What the magistrates did will bring fear to them. In the later verses, we're going to see they became afraid when they found out that Paul was a Roman citizen. They were doing all they could to eat crow, if you will, and to go and try to make it right. But number one, the reflections from the jailbird chronicles, times of comfort, not conflict, Excuse me, times of conflict, not comfort, reveal one's faith. But number two, notice what was going on in the latter part of verse 25. Notice after the comma that separates it, and the prisoners were listening to them. Do you think anybody's watching your life? Do you think anybody's watching the preacher, what I post on Facebook, what I share, what I communicate, how I talk, how I act in public, how I respond when my coffee is made wrong, right? You better believe it. Point number two, somebody is looking for Jesus through you. Somebody is watching what we do like these prisoners were for Paul and Silas and watching, waiting, hoping there was something they would see in Paul and Silas that was different than everything else going on around them. And they were clinging on it. They were waiting to see this guy's in prison just like us. This guy's in bondage for chains. He's just like us. Why is he over there singing? Why are they praising, singing songs and hymns? I'm over here trying to figure out how can I get out of this mess. I've been filing away at these chisels for two years. I have these chains and I just can't break through. They're watching this radical issue that takes place where Paul and Silas are now praising God in the midst of the storm. The boat's rocking all around them. And what are they doing, folks? They're praising God. Think about our own life. How many times it's the midst of the storms of life that God shows up in a mighty way. Third point, God often does his greatest work amidst conflict. Amidst conflict. Look what the scriptures tell us happened in verse 26. Look at your Bible with me. Read it for yourself. Let the Holy Spirit impregnate your heart with his truth. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened Folks, I believe wholeheartedly that we often, in the midst of our conflict, we so miss the very act of God in our presence, we don't even see it half the time. Now the other prisoners, now Macedonia, this region of Philippi, it wouldn't have been uncommon. This area was prone to earthquakes. But God made this ground shake. Right in the midst of all the conflict, God showed up in a mighty way and shook the foundations of that jail cell. Are we looking for God to shake the foundations of our life when a conflict arises so that we can see his very presence is with us? Folks, I would argue if we examined our life, we would see amidst the conflict and the turmoil, amidst the raging seas of life that are going on, amidst our dire cry for distress calls that our boat is sinking, I would argue God is just waiting for the moment to show up in your life to do a great work that we can only give him credit for. Amen? There's some things that it takes a conflict for us to get out of the way and finally be at the end of our rope where we can't do anything else to fix it. And we've got to depend upon God to come in and rattle the cages to let us truly escape it. Folks, we've got to recognize the miracle amidst the misery. And I would argue in our life and your life, God is doing that. So let me challenge you with number one. What is the challenge? Be on the lookout for the power of God amidst your trials. When you're going through something difficult, when you're going through something challenging, when you're going through something where you think you're at the end of your rope, look for God's presence because I bet you he's there. He might be shaking the foundations a little bit. You may not understand at all what's going on and how this is happening, but if you're a child of God, as was Paul and Silas, God's going to show up in a mighty way and help you be loosened from the thing that's binding you the most. The chains fell off. The doors were opened, and we're going to see what happens next. Number one, be on the lookout for the power of God amidst your trials Don't sit back like many of us are in the habit of doing and play Tom Thumb and and suck our thumb and boo-hoo-hoo, poor me, I can't do nothing. No, you know what? My God is a mighty God. We serve a mighty God that doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will not leave me. He will not forsake me. I am the Lord your God, he says to us. Folks, and he is powerful. He can remove us from any bondage that this world is trying to put on us. But number two, it gets better. I want to share with you a little bit more about this jailer and Paul and some assumptions that we make. Number two, we need to realize the dangers of legalism. The dangers of legalism. Look at verse 27 and verse 28 with me. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. By the way, you can underline here, this is a tangent. You ever pull off the side of the road when your phone rings and you got to take the conversation for a minute? Then you get back on the road and keep traveling? Here's where we're at for a minute. We're on the side of the road. Two mentions of suicide in the New Testament, one here and one with Judas. Notice there's no condemnation for what he was going to do. We don't condemn those who are at the dire straits of that act where they commit the sin of suicide. But folks, let me share with you, it's not the unpardonable sin. The only unpardonable sin that the Bible teaches us of is the fact that when we reject the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. So here, this man is at the end of his ropes, thinking all that has gone wrong is going to lead to him killing himself. And notice what happens. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison, we're back on the road, by the way, the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. For we're all here. Now you can imagine the echo in the prison chambers. We're all here. So let me make a few assumptions of what was going on about this Philippian jailer. Now we've got to remember that Philippi was a Roman colony. It was established and settled by those soldiers who had retired or had completed their obligation of service. And they were often given land and given the ability to go and self-govern themselves. They were not under the rule of Rome per se. They didn't have to pay taxation They were governing themselves. Now, this Philippian jailer, we don't know much else about him other than this event when he comes to salvation through the ministry of Paul and Silas. But we know that he was probably a soldier. Now, if you know much about soldiers, soldiers are taught to follow the letter of the law. Matter of fact, one of the first things that happened to a soldier when they go to basic training on day one, they're probably going to be given a little piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, regardless of what branch, is going to be something that's called their general orders. I will guard my post and quit my post only when properly relieved. I still remember mine, right? Because there are commandments that we were told we cannot violate these three things for the army, right? We've got to do these things. This jailer would have been absolutely following the letter of the law because he was responsible for those prisoners. And with that responsibility meant for the Roman that if he failed to uphold his obligation, he could consider himself dead. The penalty for failing to do that would be death. The Roman soldier that fails to fight or shows cowardice in face of the enemy is often found himself run through by his centurion's sword as the centurion is leading and pushing the men forward in battle. If the soldier was to turn, the centurion would strike through him and move him out of the way as a barrier to progress. You see, the Roman soldier understood they followed orders or they died. And here, he understood the weight of what took place, and he bore the responsibility of this legalism that was ingrained in him, that he had to follow the letter of the law or else he would die. We assume he was a former soldier. We understood that he took his job, the requirements of his job, legal requirements, he understood them, but he took his job seriously, seriously. I mean, he really took it to heart. Lastly, he was about to kill himself for failing this responsibility. Now, what do we learn from the Philippian jailer? Folks, I will tell you what I have learned in my walk with Christ. we got a lot of folks in the church that are like the Philippian jailer, where we have to follow this legalistic step by step by step by step. This is the legalistic practices that we have to follow. If we do it any other way, we have failed because someone taught us that. Folks, I would caution any church when legalism creeps in to what it does to ruin and damage the body of Christ. Folks, we don't have to live legalistically. We live by the word of God. The word of God is pretty clear in that it gives us freedom. Jesus says, I come so that you may have life and have it in abundance. Why would we want to presuppose ourselves to rules and regulations As the Galatian church, when you read Paul's letter to the Galatians, they were starting to do this very thing again about what they eat, what they touch, how they wash, all the legalistic practices. Whether we took the Lord's Supper with a suit and tie on, or whether we did it with a sports coat and blue jeans. How we do certain things in our order of service. How we take up the offering or we don't take off the offering. Let me share something with you, church. We haven't passed the plate in six months. But guess what? God's people are still faithful. Amen. God don't need our systems and ways of doing things. We follow the scriptures and what we need to do. We can avoid the dangers of legalism in the church. Don't taste, don't touch, don't do this, don't do that. Let's focus on the assumptions we can make about Paul for a minute. What are some key assumptions that we see here about Paul's life? That he worshiped God in the worst of life circumstances. He would go on later and talk about his accounts of being shipwrecked and beaten and flogged and scourged on the verge of death, stoned. But yet, here he stood, worshiping God. Now, here's an interesting point, though. That Paul sought the welfare of others regardless of who they were. Y'all catch that for a minute. Paul sought the welfare of other people regardless of who they were. Think about where Paul's at for a moment. In a prison, under false accusations. Not guilty of anything. Roman jailer, soldier jailer, holding him now in shackles and chains, guarding the facility, probably not treating him real nice. And all of a sudden, when God shows up right in the midst of their conflict, rattles the cages, shakes the foundations, the Roman soldier is about to kill himself, the jailer. What does Paul do? We're all here, he shouts out. Don't kill yourself. Don't do that. The very man that was oppressing Paul. Now Paul is saying, no, 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 no. I care about you. Let me, let me share with you something that you need to know. Man, what a lesson for you and I to walk away from knowing that even when we're being oppressed by people, whether they're a politician, whether they're a governor, whether they're an official, whether they're a, a family member who is as wayward as wayward can be, Folks, when we are oppressed by the other side, we can still praise Jesus and look out for their welfare. We can still love them through our actions, even though we don't agree with what they're doing. Truth without love is not truth. We must love through that, but we also must share truth. Let me look at the third thing real quick. Let's look together. Notice what Paul did. Notice Paul took charge of the situation. He didn't just sit back there quiet, thinking, well, when he comes in, I'm going to shoot out the door. They'll never see me. They'll never miss me. No, Paul immediately stood in the gap, not only for himself and for Silas, but notice what he says, we are all, you remember those, remember those other prisoners that were watching Paul and Silas singing, praising, singing hymns, they were watching Paul and Silas, Paul says, no, no, we're all here. He took charge of everybody that was in the facility. And he wanted the Roman soldier to know that. What an awesome assumption that we can make about Paul. So here's the challenge. What do we do with that? I'd ask you this question. What assumptions are people making about Jesus because of you? It's deep, isn't it? What assumptions are people making about our Lord because of you? Are they assuming that our god is legalistic because we've got to don't teach don't touch don't do this do that not this or are they assuming that god is a god of grace and forgiveness a god of love and a god of mercy yes he's a god of wrath yes he's a god of vengeance but remember what he said vengeance is mine saith the lord what assumptions are people making about jesus because of you and i i'd argue they're making more than we ever realized you may say why does it matter we're going to see in a moment it mattered to the jailer, it mattered to his entire household. it mattered the faithfulness of what was going on of Paul and Silas. Why did it matter because their lives for eternity depended upon it. What assumptions are people making about Jesus because of you and I? I hope they 're making the right assumptions. we can lead them. Let me share with you an illustration real quick and i 've got a, got an interesting picture now you may have have seen this picture before i 'm not going to Say which side of it you saw it from. That's okay. That's between you and the Lord. Amen. But I love playing Monopoly. And in the game of Monopoly, there's a corner section of that board that goes, if you land on it, it says, go straight to jail. Right? And in that jail, there's only a few ways to get out. Now, I want to ask you this from a spiritual perspective. Put your spiritual thinking mind on. If you had to define your spiritual life as it related to prison terms, Which one of these would would describe how you view your walk with God and how you view God in your life? I'm going to give you a couple of choices. Just think about it real quick. I don't have them up on the screen. Just keep looking at the bars. Would you describe your spiritual life as, A, one that's doing time? Life is punishing me for doing wrong, so I just have to deal with it. Folks, there's a lot of people that have that perspective, that life is punishing me because I've done wrong, so I'm just behind these bars, helpless, just waiting to do my time. B, that time serves. I deserve what I'm getting for what I have done. I, I deserve it. C, I'm out on parole. Huh, I sure hope I can stay that way because, man, if I get caught again, I'm going straight back to prison. We live our life thinking if I fail God again, he's going to disown me this time. There'll be no coming back. Maybe it's F. Maybe you're a fugitive with the perspective of, yeah, to get me to go back, they're going to have to kill me. To get me back in the church doors, that'll be... A cold day in Hades. Amen. Or maybe you're the guy saying, I'm on death row. There's no hope for me. There's nothing that can bring me back from this. It is sealed, said, and done. The order's already been signed. I'm on death row. And here's the one I like the most. Maybe, and I hope this is you, you have found yourself pardoned. You know what pardoned means? Pardoned means there's not even a record of the offense that was wronged that convicted you of your guilt in the first place let me read for you a psalm psalm 103 verses 10 through 12 and i'll give you time to jot that one down psalm 103 verses 10 through 12 let me read this psalm for you about this issue of how god pardons those of us that are guilty from sin that deserve the wages of death but he gives us a pardon through his son jesus christ listen to the way the psalmist describes this pardon He says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. Folks, that's the God that we serve. That's the God that loves us. I hope you find yourself in the pardon, but if you're not in that pardon category and maybe you're doing time, maybe you've time served, maybe you're out on parole, maybe you're a fugitive, maybe you're sitting here on death row, spiritually speaking. I'm going to share with you in this next scripture how God tells us we can have true pardon. Look in verses 29 through 34. I want to share with you how do we receive the gift of liberty, true freedom. Looking in verse 29, and the jailer called for the lights and he rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Now, former Roman soldier, jailer, in charge, people under his authority. Notice his posture right now. Roman soldiers don't get fearful too often. He knows something tremendous has taken place here. And look at his position of his body, his body stature. Where is he at? He has fallen down at the feet of these two condemned men that are in prison. Folks, if that doesn't give you a startling picture of the hand of God and what is taking place here. Verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Isn't it ironic? It's the very person who had Paul and Silas in bondage. That is now turning to Paul and Silas seeking to be free from the bondage of sin. With the truth of the gospel that he has experienced, the jailer is experiencing firsthand. He knows the hand of God is upon Paul and Silas. So let me give you four four ways, if you will, to get out of jail free. You can't win this in Monopoly. You can't land on it. You can't draw it from the deck and get it. God gives it to you for free. Number one, you need to recognize your prison not prison but what is binding you what are those things in your life where you and you alone will give an account before an almighty and righteous god that's the reality of it see i'm not going to pay for your sin nor will you pay for my sin for it is appointed once for man to die and then judgment The writer of Hebrews says, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But first, we've got to recognize what is my sin? What is my prison that's keeping me away from my righteousness and right standing with God to being reconciled with God? Any sin keeps us from that position. Any sin is everyone's prison. And there's only one cure for that. Well, let me share with you what that cure is. Number two, we've got to respond to the paraclete not the punishment. We've got to respond to the paraclete. What do I mean by paraclete? That's the word for comforter, advocate, Holy Spirit, that comes and draws men unto the Father. For we know that the Scripture teaches that no man comes to the Father unless the Father has called us and moved us. And that occurs by the Holy Spirit's convicting us in our heart that we need to be saved. You see, we need to respond to the paraclete. We need to respond to the drawing of the Holy Spirit when we realize that our sin has put us in our prison. And the only way out to be forgiven of that sin is to respond to what the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God is doing in our life daily. That's number two. But here's what I think often happens. We respond to the punishment more than we do the paraclete. We're more grieved often over the consequences of our sin than the very sin themselves. Think about that. You ever get in trouble as a child and you knew what you did was wrong and you were were a little remorseful maybe but you were remorseful because you got caught not because you did it. Boy, isn't that our sin nature. We grieve over the fact that we know there's a punishment for it but we're not necessarily grieving over the fact we did it. I'd argue, folks, that what keeps us in sin often is the human nature that's within sight of each and every one of us. We like it. Y'all catch that? We like it. Now, you think about a sin that's in your life, in my life. Now, when I think about will I'll I'll, I'll look at myself for a minute. When I think about the sins that are in my life, you know, there's not a single sin that I commit that I don't actually somewhat kind of in a certain way have a part of me that kind of likes doing it. Think about that for a minute. Now, we may be disgusted by it. We may hate it. Afterwards, we may feel contrition for what we've done, and we repent and ask for God's forgiveness. But there's a part of our flesh that when we do whatever your sin is, you kind of like it. Doesn't it feel good when somebody upsets you to just tell them off? Mmm, Give them a piece of your mind, brother. Right? And you feel good about it for about two seconds. And you're like, oh, somebody was watching me. Man, I just blew it. Then you go back and you eat a little crow yourself. I'm so sorry for the way I acted. That was so silly. I know I'm a child of God. I sure didn't act like it. But thank God Jesus isn't me. I'm not Jesus. but we can count on him, he won't fail me. So trust in him, not in me. Amen? But there's a little part of us that always likes that. At least even for just a moment. Until, until we realize it. And if you're a child of God, we can't stay in that sin. I read during our baptism from Romans chapter 6. It's very interesting. Romans 6 verses 1 and 2. Paul is addressing this issue of sin in our life. He says, "Should should we abound in sin more because of grace? Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So when we do sin and we realize that we repent of it, God gives us the strength to respond in a way. But we've got to respond to the paraclete, not the punishment. It's not the punishment. It causes us to repent. It's a separation in our relationship with God. It's a broken fellowship with our Lord. But number three, not only do we need to recognize our prison, and we've got to respond to the paraclete, but we've got to believe in the person, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul told the jailer here. Believe in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, let me pull off the side of the road here for a minute again. All right? Y'all with me? You ever heard a parent say, well, I don't want to force my religion upon none of my children. I want them to make up their own minds for Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you send your children to school? Most of us would say yes. Some form of it today, whatever that form may be right now. But you have your children go to school. You send them. Now, do they want to go to school every day? No. Why not? Because they don't like it, right? But why do you send them? Because you know it's good for them. You know they need it. You know that without it, it's going to cause them harm down the road. Why do we take the position that, well, I'm not going to force my faith on my children. Now, folks, I'm not saying force it upon them. But it's another thing that if you're under the age of 18 living in my house, you're going to be in church, amen? You're going to come to Sunday school. I don't care if you like it or not. Why? Because you need it. Train up a child in the way they shall go. And when they are old, I, was, I always dislike that part. I'm like, Lord, how long is that? How long do I got to wait until they figure it out and come on back, right? And when they are old, they will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way they shall go. What does the scripture say? Father, mother, you have a responsibility to train up your child to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul says believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Now, I could give that to you in the Greek, but it would do you no good. It still says household, right? Now, what this isn't saying here, this isn't proclaiming an announcement that it's right to baptize infants. Often, some people will read that into this verse of Scripture, that this Scripture and the one of Lydia's household that we examined in the beginning of chapter 16 gives us the precedence for paido baptism or infant baptism. But folks, that's not... Anywhere clearly in that scripture. What we see go on in verse 32 clarifies it. Look in your Bibles with me. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. Now, what's he referring to there? Guess what just took place? They began to be discipled with the word of God. God started to use his word through Paul and Silas and those that were present to begin a discipleship regimen to the entire family. That's what was happening. All night, imagine sitting around the sofa, eating pita bread and hummus. And next thing you know, you're being shared all the scriptures and what's taking place now that your mind is spiritually opened because you've accepted and believed upon Jesus. And now we're going to teach you. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Everybody, servants, children, the household was receiving the knowledge of God. Isn't it a beautiful sight? Verse 34, Then he brought them up, excuse me, verse 33, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his household, set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So we've got to believe in the person Jesus Christ. And if you've done those things, number four, Folks, you've received the pardon from God Almighty. That's the most beautiful gift we could have ever gotten, is the fact that we've been pardoned by God through His Son, Jesus Christ, through the drawing of the Holy Spirit because of the sin which is our prison. Clear as day in this text of Scripture, what happened for that Philippian jailer. So challenge number three, are you still in prison? Are you out on parole? Or have you been pardoned? The ways we look at this. What does true salvation mean? It means that I'm not in prison anymore. I may still be tempted with sin. I may still have to deal with this body and the flesh. You can read Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 26 and see what Paul says about this issue. Oh, what a miserable man am I. Who will deliver me from this? All but Christ Jesus. I still have to deal with the flesh. Are you in prison? Have you been paroled? Or have you been pardoned? If you come to Jesus, you've been pardoned, I assure you of that, as far as the east is from the west. Let me share with you an image of encouragement for a minute. You ever run a marathon? Now, I know, I know, don't judge, lest thou shalt be judged, right? You know I run marathons often, you can tell, I got it. But I remember when I did run, and I ran fast, by the way, but when I did run, I remember long runs, you get wore out, you start to dehydrate. I remember at times, and so many miles down the road, my body would literally stop sweating. And it was always encouraging for me for someone to be there handing me a cup of Gatorade or a bottle of water or most of the time just shouting at me to run faster. Uh, But the encouragement nonetheless was there for me. And it helped me get along, especially in the race of life. Every now and then we need a little bit of hydration to help us go that extra mile. And somebody's got to be there to hand that to us, to help us. Now self-motivation gets us but so far. A lot of people are self-motivated to an extent. But then most of us need a little bit of encouragement along the way to get us over those difficult times in life. Now what we're going to see in this next passage of Scripture in closing is going to be this encouragement that this entire event has placed and done for the Philippian church. So let's look in our Bibles real quick. Reviving the courage of others, verses 35 through 40. But when it was day, the magistrate sent sent the police saying, Let those men go. And a jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Now, park there for a minute. Paul says, "No, I don't think so. No, 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 no. This ain't going to happen this way. You see, because i got other people watching, too. And they're going to see what takes place in just a minute. Look at verse 37. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Isn't that good? Folks, let me share something with you if you're a man in this congregation. You can be a godly man. You can be a God-fearing man. You can be a man with humility. You can be a a man who follows God with all his heart, but you don't have to be a wimp. You can stand your ground when right is right. And what we see Paul doing here is standing his ground for righteousness. And he's communicating a message to everyone watching that right is right. And I don't have to cower down and walk away just because I profess the name of Jesus. When we can stand for righteousness and confront wrong that is going on. We can be godly men. And ladies, you can be godly women with assurity and firmness. That doesn't contradict the issues and aspects of humility, of submission, or those other things that we ought to have as well. We can stand for the word of God with firmness and with boldness. Notice what happens in verse 38. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Now this goes a little deeper. Now we've got to put our theological hats on for a minute. This is the first Roman colony that we have a record of, of the gospel message taking root. Y'all with me? This is the first instance that we have where the gospel has planted a seed where the church is starting to grow in a Roman colony. Later on, Paul will make his way to Rome, and it won't end quite as favorably as this event does for Paul, but the message gets communicated in the way that Paul had to deliver it nonetheless. What a wonderful understanding that there's, a, there's an impression being made upon the church and upon those who are Roman citizens, what God is doing even amongst the heathen, pagan culture of Rome. Verse 39. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. What did they do? They went back to the first church plant, the house church the gathering of these women that they first went and found at a place of prayer they presumed would be outside the city near the river. And when they had communicated the gospel, Lydia and her entire household accepted Jesus and was baptized and began the Philippian church. We have a wonderful letter to the Philippian church that Paul writes addressing these very same people in the issues that are going there. Notice what the scripture leaves us with. And when they had seen the brothers... They encouraged them and departed. Now imagine without the encouragement of what Paul, being led by the Holy Spirit, had he just left away, tucked tail and ran, what that message would have sent to the rest of the church that was just getting its roots dug in. But instead, that Philippian church saw what happened. They saw the persecution, they saw the truth of the gospel, they saw the power of Jesus cast out a demon. They saw salvation come to them and their entire household. And now they saw a righteous man of God confronting the Roman authorities, saying, you were wrong for what you did. And after he did it, he came and he supped with Lydia, her household. And the brothers were encouraged because of it. How do we encourage one another? we give you four things very quickly. We stand for righteousness, number one. Stand for righteousness. Righteousness means right standing with God. Number two, we remain steadfast amidst our trials. Remain steadfast amidst our trials. Whatever's going on in our life, we need to remember God is bigger than you and I. He is greater than me. Number three, recognize that the great work that God is doing through you, not just around you, but what is that work that God is doing through you right now in your life? And if you can't think of one, God's saying, what are you waiting for? You are the vessel in which I do my work. You are the prime jewel of my creation. And on the sixth day, he created man in his image. And he saw him and said, it is very good. We're the prime jewel of his creation, made to do his work, to have dominion, to increase, to multiply, to subdue the earth. For all that God has done, he has placed in our responsibility. God is wanting to do a great work through you. What is stopping that? Thirdly, seek to encourage one another. Now notice what Paul wasn't doing. Paul wasn't standing in the town square crying out at the top of his voice, saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. No, where did he go to encourage someone? He was encouraging the brothers. He was encouraging the church. He was encouraging those who had placed their trust and faith in Christ Jesus. Folks, you can encourage the heathen all day long, all you want to. But it's a whole other thing when we are called to encourage the body of Christ, to encourage one another. Let me remind you, when you draw your last breath, and then I draw my last breath, we will meet again. Amen? So if you didn't like me now, you're really not going to like me in heaven, right? That's the reality of it. How often do we miss that? We're here to encourage one another. Because if we're in Christ Jesus, our eternity began the moment we accepted Christ. And I still got to put up with all of you when I get to heaven, Right? Y'all will be perfect then, though, so I won't have as much problems. <laughs> so let me share with you our image again of our closing of our big ship. How can, how can you be in a... I guess there's challenge number four, right? Let me give that one to them, Scott. Here's challenge number four. Some of y'all with OCD will go home and you can't sleep night because you didn't get that fourth point. How can you be an encouragement to someone? How can you be an encouragement to the church this week, this month, or this season? Ask yourself that. How can you encourage? How can you hand a cup of cold water to someone that's thirsty? Someone that needs to take a knee in ministry? Someone that needs a breath of fresh air? Someone that needs someone to speak a word of encouragement into them to help them get over the next hill that they're fixing to climb? Folks, that's what we're called to be. Let us encourage one another. So let me close with my illustration one more time. Again, most of us think that when we're going through a storm of life, this is what we're dealing with often. Ship's about to sink. Don't you even care that we're going to die? Jesus' apostles say, his disciples say to him on the boat when the great storm, Jesus was sleeping, wasn't even bothered by it. He woke up and said, peace be still. And he calmed the storm. So when we think this is happening in our life, let me show you my, my favorite picture. The reality is, not only is the storm not that bad, but notice God gives us the umbrella of his salvation. To keep us dry in the season of storms of our life. Notice that he's still providing for us. Even when the storms are all around us. We can still go about doing the work he's called us to. We can sit on the boat of life and keep fishing. Because he's sheltering us and protecting us. From all these things that we think are so bad. That guy's having a good old time out there, ain't he? Quiet all by himself. Storms are often not nearly as bad as we think they are. Seek to know that God is in your presence. So let me close our message asking you, as the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responds, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and you will be saved. Do you know that you know with the assurance of salvation that you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? If you're at home watching, you can do that right where you are. Say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you died on the cross of Calvary for me. I believe you were placed in the tomb, and on the third day you rose from the dead. And I tr- put my trust and faith in you. Forgive me. If you want to read more about that, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, and you can read what Paul says about this entire gospel story in one place, the truth of the Scriptures. And if that's you today and you need to accept Christ, because you know you've been out on parole, but you need to be pardoned, let us know somehow. During our time of invitation, you can walk forward. And I'll pray with you here to receive Christ. I can meet with you in my office. And I'll meet up with you over lunch. If you want to buy my lunch, that, that'll work too. That's good. But on a serious note, God loves you. And he loves you so much that he won't leave you where you are. Let's pray together today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, do you know that you know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Do you know that there's been a day in your life where you've confessed and said, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross. Come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. And if that's you, then you can rest assured that you have the assurance of eternal life through Christ Jesus. And church, if you are saved, you are the church, what are we doing to encourage one another? What assumptions are being made about your walk, about Jesus because of my walk? I'd encourage you to realize the witness and testimony that God has given you and I, to sing songs and praises even amidst our trials that he is faithful and true. So Father, we commit this time to you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word and the scriptures. Father, we thank you for the witness of men like Paul and Silas and this Philippian jailer who allowed themselves to get out of the way so that the work of God could be done. Father, we thank you for this precious time. If there's one that does not know you, we pray today would be that day of salvation in their life. May we celebrate and rejoice with them the beginning of their eternity. Father, we thank you for this precious young lady that was saved and was baptized this morning. We ask your protection and commit her to you. May we as the church strengthen and disciple her to follow you all the days of her life. We thank you for this time now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.